So this evening, I want to talk about community and the community, not just of us humans here practicing in the community of this retreat together, but the community of all beings and the community of nature that is supporting us so generously while we practice here together. And I want to begin by uh, find it. <clears throat> and I, I chose this topic because I've been learning about, I've been reading a book called um, The Hidden Life of Trees. And I got this book because I found out about the research of a woman named uh, Suzanne Simard in uh, British Columbia about the way that the forest interacts and communicates and just all these things that we had no idea about. And they fascinated me and I feel very different as you know, walking here in the trees and wondering, you know, how much more do we not know about about what's happening and how uh, how our lives are being so beautifully supported uh, by the forest and that and how it's how the forest creatures and trees and everything in the forest how support each other. And I wanted to begin. Um, with something I can't find. Oh, here it is. Okay. <clears throat> and it's something that uh, you may have heard about yourselves, which is in April, uh, Pope Francis gave a TED Talk. And the idea of the Pope giving a TED Talk seemed <laughs> odd. But he did it at the Vatican, sitting at a kind of desk table at the Vatican, and... You know, he wasn't on a TED Talk stage. Um, and he just looked right into the camera and spoke so uh, beautifully, really compellingly. And it was a very moving talk about our interconnectedness and about compassion and kindness uh, with each other. And we hear these talks all the time, but there was something special because he was talking about how the world needs a revolution of tenderness. And the word in Italian is very beautiful, la tenerezza. And he was speaking Italian and it was, um, you know, translated in text on the screen. And, and he defines la tenerezza as a love that is very close and intimate and real. It's the kind of love that we talk about when we do metta practice, you know, coming very close to ourselves, uh, dissolving the barriers that separate us from each other and from the parts of ourselves that we may not particularly like or enjoy. So he, and he, as he looked us in the eye and talked about this tenderness and caring that connects us, Again, he was embodying that. He was looking at us tenderly and lovingly. And uh, 
I, I felt the way my daughter, when she was little, used to feel watching Mr. Rogers on television. And those of you who are too young, he was this wonderful uh, television host of a kids' program. And he would begin each episode by uh, walking onto the set, and then he would take off his sweater and hang it up. And then he would sit down and say, Hi. And she would say, Hi. <laughs> and, you know, there was no sense that this was somebody inside a TV screen, you know. So I felt that way with the Pope. Um, he said, Tenderness means using eyes to see each other, ears to listen to the children, to the poor, uh, to those who are afraid of the future to the silent cry of our common home, our sick and polluted earth. And then he talked about the strength, the courage, the bravery that it takes to be able to face um, this, to be able to be that open-hearted. And I'm sure you feel this. Many of you have been practicing for a long time. And the more um, tenderized, our hearts become, and the more we let those barriers melt away, the walls that separate us from parts of ourselves and from each other, the more uh, we actually feel the suffering in the world. And we do, and we feel it very acutely. And it's as though we just get very permeable. And I know that... uh, I feel that way, and I'm sure you do too, many of you. And and so it does. It takes a kind of strength or courage to be that open and to live and move in the world. Um, and, and there's a joy that comes, of course, from being able to, uh, as I say in one of the metaphrases, to live with the ease of an open heart. Um, We didn't use that phrase today, but I love that phrase. To live with the ease of an open heart brings joy. But it also requires a certain kind of um, fortitude, I would say. Um, And the Pope talked about... uh, The way that he talked, and, um, and a few of you have heard me talk about this before, on our Thursday morning class, but I, I just felt it so uh, deeply. The way that he talked was um, deceptively simple, because it was—I say deceptively simple—because it was very mystical and profound. But he talked about how much he loved watching uh, parents talk to their kids. And he said what he loved about it is the way that, for example, when adults talk to a baby, they modulate their voice and they get to the, you know, they talk in the tones of the baby, um, the tones of voice. And then he talked about how um, uh, they get down at the level of kids. And those of you who, like I, have worked with kids a lot, you know, you just instinctively, when it's a toddler or somebody small, you just instinctively get down to their level. You don't, I mean, except if you're like a busy mom doing stuff. You, but, you know, if you're actually with them communicating or playing, you get down at their level. And, um, and he says, he said, uh, a, 
this is the way that the grown-ups learn to... Oh, I don't know why this makes me very touched. He said, this is the way that the grown-ups learn to speak the language of... of of those who need the other. You see, children know they need the other. Adults think, we can imagine that we don't, or pretend that we don't, but children can't. They know that they need the other. And um, and he says, you know, this is how a child's love for their mom and dad, and their dad and dad, or their mom and mom, or whatever kind of family they live in, but this is how their love for their parents grows is through um, the tenderness that is expressed by this coming down to the level. And so he says, I like to hear the mama or the papa talk to the babies and the little children um, being on the same level. And then he just says, um, and that's what God did with us. He said, um, God came into Jesus, who would be a human like us and at our level. Now, you know, I'm Jewish, it's not that I, but there was something about the way that he said that, that I felt this isn't just true about Jesus, it's true about each one of us. Uh, Once I was at a Christmas celebration um, in a Trappist monastery in Spencer, Massachusetts, uh, and Father Thomas Keating was there, who because he loved meditation and he taught something called centering prayer, he had invited a Zen master named Sazaki Roshi to do a Zen session at the monastery. So I had come as a Zen student. Um, and we, and then in the middle of the session, I, I guess it was Christmas, um, he, uh, Father Thomas, I mean, Roshi led the retreat, but Father Thomas celebrated a Mass in the middle of the retreat. And because I was sitting and quiet and, you know, just as you are here, we have... I thought, oh my gosh, this is what Christmas means. It's really the sacredness and divinity of our birth, each one of us, of our true nature. Um, And this is the path that we live our entire human existence and we... uh, in this practice, whether we're calling it metta, loving kindness, or mindfulness, or apamada, a kind of vigilance of care, it's really about this tenderness, this tenderezza, and living our human existence with tenderness um, for each other. And I love what he said, because he said, uh, tenderness is the path of choice for the strongest and most courageous men and women. And that's great because often in our culture, tenderness is seen as perhaps um, a more feminine quality or something that isn't manly. Um, And so I love that. He's just talking about the strength and um, the real concrete language of love. And and then he, he talked about power and the need to connect our power to humility and tenderness. And each one of us has a certain amount of power. You know, we may not think we're powerful because we're not um, in the government or something, or president, if only we were. Uh, (laughs) I often think of that Dr. Seuss book, If I Ran the Zoo. Um, Anyway, 
But we have the power of our own life, and we have the power, you know, each one of us, to be leaders in some way in our life, some way that matters to us. And um, and I love that he also said that <coughs> the future of humanity is not just in the hands of politicians and corporations. It's really in our hands, each one of us. And um, that as each one of us manifests our tenderness and leads in that way, you know, we become more and more and more, and then there's the revolution of tenderness. And and this is leading me to what I wanted to share with you about the trees and the forest. Because the recent discoveries that have been made about the sentience of the forest, of course, indigenous people will say that they've known this all along, but we're learning the mechanisms of how the trees actually communicate with each other through um, fragrances and electrical signals and all kinds of amazing ways. And here we are, you know, surrounded by forest. And I'm also sure that, you know, grasses and, and who knows, maybe someday even rock and soil more and more is going to be discovered. We're just scratching the surface of how nature works um, with new technology for discovering that. But uh, what Suzanne Samard discovered, she started her... She was always curious about something she had noticed, um, that when these paper birch trees were removed, the conifers near them would die. And she wondered why that was, why that would happen. You'd think that um, thinning the trees would make room for more light and more space, and they would grow bigger and stronger, but it was the opposite that happened. And then she began her doctoral research in 1992, and using lots of technology um, that I don't have to go into the details of all that, but she discovered that um, there was this, network of communication uh, called, they, it's, it was uh, published in Nature in an article in 1997, and in the article they called it the Wood Wide Web. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that there is a network, you know, like a telecommunications network, only it's so much more vast and sophisticated than anything that humans have created. Mm-hmm. And underground, it consists of these tiny little hairs of fungi, micros, there's a word which some of you who are biologists might know how to pronounce the word. Um, I'm going to try and say it, and if somebody knows, then they can, you know, it's one of those words, mycorrhizal. How do you pronounce it? If you're a gardener, you know it too, hopefully. Mycorrhizal? I just know how it's spelled. (laughs) M-Y-C-O-R-R-H-I-Z-A-L. Anyway, um, she discovered that in a teaspoon of soil, there are hundreds of miles of these filaments. I mean, just these mind-blowing things that a teaspoon of soil. So, um, she's talking about the need, 
she's not calling it a revolution of tenderness, but to treat our forests with tenderness and respect. And that the reason our forests have become so commodified is that we see ourselves as separate. We see ourselves as separate from nature or from trees or from each other or from... And of course, in one way, we are separate, that's true, but in another way, we aren't. And this can be experienced, you can experience this, and many of you have in your practice, an unmistakable experience of um, a connection and non-separation. Um, in the little office by the middle house, there's a roomy quote, and it says, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the ocean in a drop. So it's that kind of understanding of um, our interconnection. And of course, the Buddha taught this very powerfully. And you know, when this happens, when this arises, this arises, and and it's just so connected. You can't have. Uh, awareness without some object of awareness. They come together. They happen together. Uh, but the part about the trees that I felt so moved by is that they really are a community. And in that community, there's different shapes and sizes and species. And, and so you would think, obviously, there would be different rates of photosynthesis depending on the location of the tree and the conditions and so forth. But what they discovered is that the rate of photosynthesis is the same for all the trees. And there was no way to understand this. How could that be? But in this network, now they understand that the trees um, support each other because they understand that for the health and strength of the community, the Weaker trees or the ones that might be injured, um, you know, by an animal or or an insect or something, that to to support the health of those trees, they send them extra sugar, they send them extra nutrients of what they need. So everybody, um, it's like redistribution of wealth Mm -hmm. uh, that we kind of need in our community too. And just as an aside. there's a young woman, the daughter of uh, somebody that we know named Larry Brilliant. Her name is Iris, and uh, she has started this project. I forget the name of it, but she um, partners with somebody from... And, and Iris was born very privileged and raised um, pretty rich. And so she uh, she's doing work in community organizing, and, and she partners with somebody from a community who is either homeless or poor or um, definitely not um, a privileged person. And they've been going into wealthy communities in Marin County. And, And she says, because I was born a rich person, I know that rich people are not bad, and we were a good family, but I also know that there's a lack of awareness. And so together they go and knock on doors and they talk to the wealthy people and ask them if they might be willing to share some of their resources with people who could use some support. And the response that they've been getting is very interesting. Of course, some people uh, are not interested at all. 
But some people have been really listening. And it's sort of like nobody has talked to them person to person, face to face, about this before. So the trees have already understood the need to close that, um, that income gap and to make sure that they're all uh, gently thriving together. The other thing that I wanted to share with you about, uh, that just also blew my mind about the community of the forest, um, is that when there's, uh, and this is much, this is in uh, undisturbed forests, there's an undisturbed forest across the way. Uh, the Lamanga Forest, which is an old-growth forest, and it was threatened a few years ago. We really thought we might lose it, and then was it a lawsuit that was won? Um, and it's been saved. But the importance of these forests that have never been disturbed is huge because the, uh, the networks and the communication and the care that I'm describing does not happen the same way in um, planted forests. The tree, it's as though the trees have lost some of their intelligence and capacities. Um, and some of that comes from the way that they're, they have root balls. They have to be cut, the roots cut to, to the root ball so they're transportable. But it's really actually like cutting out part of their brain um, because the root tips, you know, we just didn't know these things. They're like neurons. Mm-hmm. And the tips carry the intelligence that communicates with the fungi. And it's all very interlinked, you know, this symbiosis where uh, the fungus species, I, I forget what they get from the nutrients and the water from the trees and how they help each other. But when there's a big ancient tree, that tree um, is, is actually called a mother tree. And what they have discovered is that the mother's they know which seeds are their babies, their children. And they feed them more than the other children. They do share with stranger children, but not as much. Um, they give, they privilege their own children. The, to me, the idea that trees knew their children, I don't know, does that strike you as amazing uh, as it does me? Um, and you might think, well, what does this have to do with meditation? Um, what does it have to do with meditation, do you think? You know, we just practiced metta together this afternoon. You know, I think that uh, <coughs> this sense of belonging, this sense of mutual support, uh, this sense of being you know, what Martin Luther King liked to call, um, he didn't invent the phrase, but he certainly used it so beautifully in his speeches, the beloved community. Um, This is something that comes from our practice, our practice of meditation, because as we learn, and I'm not saying that's the only place it can come from, but it does come from our ability to uh, be present hopefully with some measure of tolerance, if not tenderness, for all of who we are. As we sit, all these different pieces and parts of 
our history and ourselves appear and some of it is very painful to see. It just is. It's painful to see the ways that I didn't understand and hurt people maybe unintentionally. Um, it's painful to see who I might have been had conditions been different to support me. Um, all of these things that we in a sense um, grieve about our history and have to learn to forgive. I'll give a talk on forgiveness next. That's a big one. But uh, as we are willing to face ourselves, our history, both individual, our families, our ancestors, our society, our culture, the more we are able to develop that strength of tenderness, of tenerezza, um, the more we are able to extend that to each other. It's just, you know, it's just a kind of, um, I don't know, like a law of the Dharma or something. It just is true. The more we open our hearts to our own experience, which is really challenging, the less we judge the experience of others and the more friendly and um, connected and less separate we feel from one another. And, and we need this. Um, it's a quote from Maya Angelou. She says, The ache for home, home in capital letters, lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. And she doesn't mean the kind of question of inquiry. She means the questioning of doubt. The questioning that happens when Iris goes with her uh, friend into those neighborhoods and the police slow down and say, what are you doing here? That kind of questioning. We don't get questioned at home. We belong there. We're safe. And so we create a home for the heart here in retreat. And and I think the other way that um, understanding more about the forest and inspires me and why I want to share it with you is because it really gives me a sense of how supported we are, ways that we don't even see or know by nature, that we get to be part of this. And it is so much more miraculous and uh, mind-boggling than, than we know. We're just learning more and more about this. And um, there's a Mary Oliver phrase I love so much. I felt it this morning walking. She said, I walk in the world to love it. And that's what, how we could do our walking meditation. And some of you were talking about that in the group, that we walk to love it, to love our world. I promised Wes I wouldn't talk too long, so I just <laughs> wonder what time it is. I mean, I have a bit more to say. What time is it? Please. I have a little more time. Thank you. And I didn't. I asked you. <laughs> no, don't worry. I didn't ask Wes. Yes, thank you. Lo and behold, it says the same thing. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> So not, you know, we're supported by nature um, that just, you know, the trees, I mean, they're just like giving, giving, giving all the time. And 
and the beauty, not to mention the beauty of this place and all of it uh, supporting us and teaching us too. You know, nature teaches us things and um, it, the vastness, the grandeur of it, the majesty, you don't have to walk too far in any direction here to see that, the vastness and, and just majesty of it. And, uh, and this is part of who we are too. You know, we do belong. It is our home. And we learn about, uh, somebody was talking about seeing a, having a beautiful black and white butterfly land on them. Mm. I've seen those butterflies. You probably have too. If you haven't, you will. And what do we learn from a butterfly, right? The alchemy of transformation. What does a butterfly come from? Does anybody know? <laughs> it comes from, right, the caterpillar that just like melts down and dissolves into nothing. And that's sort of what we have to do here. <laughs> we just have to like melt down into a puddle. And then we reemerge, um, hopefully a little more transcendent. Um, or the forest, you know, with its generosity, its community, its um, embodiment of care and apamata, its... Um, redistribution and sharing of resources and wealth in a way that we humans haven't, or at least uh, the dominant culture of European American humans hasn't learned yet. Um, The pond, the river, the aspen, the ponderosa, the dirt, um, all of it, all of it. The light, the changing light. You can look out the window now and just watch. It's like you can see the earth turn as you watch the shadow just very gently creep up the trees. And as the sun sets, you can literally see the earth turning. And and here we are. We're all inhabiting this same earth, this it's just like we all inhabit this vast consciousness. And as we sit and get quieter and more and more still, we feel it. And if you want to see how you can see, pick one place on a tree and just stare at that one place that's right above the shadow, not too far above. And if you just keep looking at that one place that's right above a shadow, you will see it move. I mean, we know that the earth is turning, but we don't feel that. It's like we know it's round, but unless you go to the top of the New World Trade Center building, you don't see the curvature of the earth. And something about seeing it for ourselves, uh, it's like seeing the laws of the Dharma, really seeing for ourselves. And what we see, too, is the transiency, the impermanence, the impermanence of any time of day. Uh, Somebody was saying they were in this blissful moment outside and just, maybe it was by the pond, I can't remember, but just feeling like this is so perfect. 
I want this to last forever. And then watching the mind go into its strategies of, let's see, how could it last forever? How could I, how could I stay here? Or how could I come back for another retreat? How could I, you know, just, just then that's what we do. But before all of that, there is that moment of just tremendous presence and the delight in that. But it changes. The time of day changes. The weather changes. Um, we were afraid of it being hot, and instead it's chilly. Uh, right? It just it's, And we see all our sensory experience just arising and passing away, um, coming into being, each experience, each breath. We've been practicing with the breath and the sensations associated with the breath. Each breath is born, has its being, and passes away and vanishes. Same with each sensation. And we're not causing it. We'd actually sometimes, I don't know about you, I've, there was a play once called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Sometimes I would like to stop it, wouldn't you? You know, just like right here, right at the top of the Ferris wheel, right here. <laughs> but it keeps turning. Um, and we didn't do it. We didn't cause it. Wes likes to say, um, we are not our fault. <laughs> and I really love that quote. Jack and I quote that all the time. We didn't cause it. Nothing, nothing, I mean, nothing lasts, including us. We are embedded. We are not separate and apart from these processes. They are us. This is life in the form of you, life in the form of me. Um, this is the life of all worlds. We're just different sprouts or blossoms, you know, blossoms of it. Um. So Wes very generously lent me two of his quotes, and I want to thank you for that, because um, one of the precepts in the Zen practice, uh, there instead of the five mindfulness trainings, there are ten, and one of them is you, is not to hoard the Dharma. <laughs> but teachers do. They hoard their stories. <laughs> I remember when Jack started using some of the poems that I used, I got so upset. <laughs> I was like, no one's going to like them anymore. <laughs> Don't get overused. <laughs> so he shared with me, this is a quote from Gandhi. He says, I find in the practice of tree worship a thing, instinct with a deep pathos, that would be the teneretza, and poetic beauty. It symbolizes true reverence for the entire plant kingdom, whose endless panorama of beautiful shapes and forms declares to us, as if with a million tongues, I would say a million leaves, the greatness and glory of creation. And this is from um, Chief Seattle. Every part of the earth is sacred to our people. Every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, every mist in the dark woods, every meadow, Every humming insect, 
all are holy. We know the sap that courses through the trees as we know the blood that runs through our veins. We are part of the earth and the earth is part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters. The bear, the deer, the great eagle, these are our brothers. The rocky crests, the berries in the meadow, the body heat of the pony and the people all belong to the same family. Think about it. Trees wear perfume just like us and they emit fragrances the same reason we do for reproduction to attract the pollinators that will carry, um, that will fertilize and I mean, it's, it's an amazing process. Trees have so many seeds and so few actually become new trees. But I love the idea of, uh, that we all kind of decorate ourselves <laughs> to um, attract each other and attract what we need in different ways. And, you know, it's very, I think it's very helpful when we get caught in our own suffering and in the silence of retreat, it's easy to do. It's really easy to do. In fact, it's inevitable that at times we just get stuck in uh, being that small, compressed, suffering self. And and the teaching is to open to that suffering. Um, To paraphrase Franz Kafka, We can hold ourselves back from the sufferings of the world. That's something we're free to do. And it accords with our nature. In other words, words, we try to avoid pain and and, um, maximize our pleasure. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering we could avoid. So I hope that you will feel... And we all feel together, I know we do, the support that comes from this place, Vayasitos, being an undisturbed and uh, beautiful refuge. The refuge in community, whether it's the community of trees or grasses or ponds or river or rocks, mountains, air, sun, all of it, the refuge uh, in community is part It's one of the three pillars of our practice here. We are going for refuge in the community of each other and our support for our harmonious living here together in the retreat and for refuge in the teachings and the Dharma and uh, refuge in the Buddha who is kind of our original teacher historically but also represents, as Wes was saying, Um, that innate wisdom and compassion that we access more and more, you know, day by day, little by little. Just as we acclimate to the altitude, do you notice you're a little less out of breath today when you go uphill? Um, You know, this is how we more and more begin to access our own wisdom and compassion. So this is what I want to share with you. 
this evening, and thank you for listening. And I really, sincerely, I'm grateful to you for your practice. Sitting with all of you in here, I feel all of the years and years of practice that you've been doing. It's very still and very awake. I know some of you are falling asleep, but you're falling asleep in the context of staying awake. You know what I mean? (laughs) Sure, we fall asleep. I missed a little part of Grove's talk last night. I hope nobody noticed, but um, (laughs) we had a sort of stressful day with whatever, electricity and whatnot, and... um, yeah, I missed part of it, but it, but I heard a lot of it too, and um, you know, I believe that on some level, you know, the receptivity uh, that Wes was talking about this morning, this receptivity, it's functioning, you know, even if we aren't totally conscious of it all the time, it, it's functioning. So, uh, really, thank you for your practice and for your listening, and we have time for some walking now. So enjoy your walking. Forty one minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.